We'll be in Revelation chapter 7 this morning. Open up there and we will get going. Thank you guys. I'm sorry uh, we couldn't meet last week. I, as I had mentioned just quickly coming up here, I had a couple of guys in the shop that came down with COVID and uh, I was feeling sick. Had, I didn't know what was going on, but I was like, yeah, I can't risk it if, if it is something going there. So that's why I had to call it on such a short notice there. Um, fortunately, my guys are back and got a couple guys that are still out sick with stuff. So just, uh, you know, be careful out there with things that are going on. You know, we, uh, I'm grateful that we're able to meet and all these good stuff. But, you know, again, just be careful. There are some things that are still happening, I'm finding out in my own life. So a couple weeks ago, if you uh, remember what we had going on, we began looking really at the first series of judgments that were taking place in the book of Revelation in chapter 6. We saw that the Lord himself had opened up the six of the first seven seals that were to be opened. And just as a reminder, you had the first seal, which was the white horse and its rider. And we knew that that was the Antichrist who went out to conquer, or conquering and to conquer, is what that was about. You had the second seal, which was the red horse and the rider. And that was the removal of peace, and you had the, the murderers arise. There was a lot of violence at that time. Then you had the third seal, which was the black horse and its rider, and that represented the global famine that was about to break out. The fourth seal, you had the pale horse and its rider, which was the widespread death on earth. There was a ton of death that was happening at that time. The fifth seal was the souls of the martyrs that were crying out. And then you had the sixth seal, which was the great earthquake, and there was really those unparalleled cosmic disturbances that were taking place at that time. So all that was happening at the beginning, and we ended with the words of the people that remained that were experiencing these things. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, it says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Just imagine that when you have, remember, we were talking about stars falling to the earth, and you had all these things that were taking place, and death, and just all these crazy things going on. Imagine being there in the midst of that, and no wonder you would be asking the same question. Who is able to stand when you face the wrath of the Lamb? We talked about it. Which, which Lamb are you going to face? Is it going to be the lamb that stood there and died for your sins? Or will you have to face him at the end of time? And he's now the lamb that is going to bring judgment. Today we continue on to chapter 7, which appears to take place sometime between the opening of the 6th and the 7th seals. And this, this section is really going to answer that question that we just read on who is able to stand. Chapter 7 will show us two different groups of people that will stand at this time of great tribulation. So let's see who they are, and let's read chapter 7, get into it a little bit here. In verse 1, it says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having a seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were being sealed, 
144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Natali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. You have four angels taking up positions on what is called or referred to as the four corners of the earth. Expressing the reality, really, when it says the four corners of the earth, of course, it's not talking about a flat earth. It's just telling you know that this is just expressing the fullness of the earth, the entire earth. And each of them were holding or restraining the four winds of the earth. And this is, once again, when it's used in that expression, it's talking about the entirety of the wind. There was a great wind that was being restrained. It was not allowed to surge across the earth because it would cause horrific damage to the earth, the sea, and the trees, he mentions. So just think about that. Now, I know, you know, here, whenever we have really big windstorms, you can see how many huge trees we have that fall over. It's always amazed me coming in from Arizona because you didn't see that a whole lot. You didn't see a whole lot of trees that would fall over in a windstorm because the roots went deep. Uh, they had to get to the water, you know, it was, uh, you know, they went way down. So it took a lot for even the little trees to fall over here. It's like a windstorm comes in and my wife's like, are we going to get hit by one of our trees? You know, it's just something you have to think about here because a lot of times there's very shallow roots. Uh, the water's all around, so it's plentiful. So they come out pretty easily. But imagine, you know, something that would be so powerful when it came to wind that the entire world would be concerned about all the trees being wiped out. The sea, you know, being tumultuous. The earth, everything on it, just being affected by this. But before these angels turned any of that destruction loose, there was a fifth angel who happened to be sealed by God, and he commanded those other four angels. And the command was to continue restraining that destruction until they had successfully sealed the servants of their gods upon their foreheads before they were able to inflict harm on the earth, the sea, and the trees. Now notice, it's interesting here because he stops them. They're restraining the, this force, this wind that's going to come in and wreak havoc upon the entire earth. And he says, stop, not until God's servants are sealed on their foreheads. You know, if you think about that, we know that most of you have are somewhat familiar with Revelation, I'm sure, and you think about the mark of the beast that's coming, and we'll eventually get to that chapter that talks about it. But isn't it interesting how the Antichrist is going to imitate that? There's going to be a mark of some sort. And yet here, God is saying right now, there's going to be a special mark on the foreheads of these people, these 144,000 people, and they're going to be specially set aside by him before this lets loose. Notice, too, that they were not removed from what was going to happen. As I've already mentioned, I believe at this point, the church is already removed. The church has been raptured at this point. Church is gone. But the Lord does not remove these, these children of Israel that are going to go through this, this 144,000 of them. He does not remove them from them. He protects them in the midst of what is going to take place. They're going to go through this particular event but they will be divinely protected during that time. They were going to be sealed 
in the midst of those judgments. So who were the people that were going to be sealed? Well, as I've already mentioned, it's 144,000 Israelites. I think that's pretty clear. 12,000 from each of these different tribes, and it's all tribes of Israel. Now, some have uh, speculated as to why, you know, Dan and Ephraim were not mentioned in that listing of the 12 tribes, and it's purely, as I've already mentioned on other parts of the study, it's speculation. Nobody knows for sure why. Uh, so it's not worth it to me to spend a lot of time giving my opinion when you already have other opinions you can read. Uh, but they're all opinions. Nobody knows why they're not mentioned in this. We do know that the tribe of Dan is going to be mentioned later. Uh, we don't know why it's not. We don't know exactly why the order is the way that it is, but it's the way that the Lord wanted it. The most common theory, though, that they have is that these two particular tribes were the greatest offenders of idolatry in Israel. So a lot of people believe that because they really introduced idolatry into Israel in such a great way that that's why they were left off. But once again, it's speculation. We don't know why. What I do know is that these 144,000 people were clearly from Jewish descent and were absolutely not like one particular false religion teaches. And I, I just want to mention this here because if you ever have anybody come to you that's a Jehovah's Witness, they will say that they are part of the 144,000, or at least they claim that some of their believers, their followers, are part of the 144,000 that were set aside. That is absolutely not true. This is something clearly, these were from the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 of each one. It's interesting because, you know, when you really study the Jehovah's Witnesses, you, what a predicament, because I, I don't think they ever thought they would grow past that 144,000, because those were the ones that were going to be accepted to be with God. You know, they were going to be able to go into eternity with him. But then they grew past 144,000 and there was really a big problem now. Well, what about everybody else? Uh, now it's interesting. I've never been to one of their gatherings, but I know that they have, you know, once a year gatherings uh, for their, they'll rent out the big coliseums and stuff. And uh, they, I just found this out recently. I didn't know this happened, but part of their gathering is that they would take communion together. But the only ones who can take communion are the ones who are part of the 144,000. So as they pass out communion and they do the elements, almost no one takes it. Because just think about that. If you take it, you're saying, I am for sure one of the 144,000. And everybody's kind of looking at each other like, did you, I mean, how do you prove that, right? I heard that and I was laughing because the, the person who was talking about that, the commentator was, was basically saying, he goes, I almost want to go just to take communion and see their faces. <laughs> just to see what they're going to do. He's like, because I know what this communion really stands for. He goes, so I wouldn't be doing anything wrong. They're doing it wrong, you know, but it just made me laugh as I was thinking about that. It may be, you make it, I don't know. It may not be good for you if you choose to do that. But another one of the common misconceptions is, and, and I, I really believe this strongly, and there are some really, you know, great believers that are brothers and sisters in Christ, but they do believe in the replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel. And they will say that this points to this is the church, 144,000. You know, guys, I, I just have to tell you, you know, if you read the book of Romans, I, I think it's very apparent, very clear that the church does not replace Israel. God is, God is working in a different dispensation. He's doing some things right now through the church, but God is not done with Israel. Uh, he's going to be working through that. And I believe that we see this right here, that the church is removed. You see that God is still working through Israel. It's a special thing that he's doing during this time. These are Jews who have come to repentance during the Great Tribulation. That's what they are. 
They've come to repentance during the Great Tribulation, and they were sealed by God to become witnesses of Jesus to the remaining world. And millions of people all over the world are going to come to salvation by the sealing of these people. Really, it's going to be, just think about that, the contrast. This is going to be some of the greatest suffering that the world has ever seen at the time. And yet you're going to see some of the greatest, maybe perhaps the greatest ever revival that takes place on the earth. 144,000, you know, people that are set aside purely to be witnesses of the grace of God. And they're dispatched throughout the world. They cannot be harmed by the things that are happening. And millions of people are going to come to salvation during that time. It's interesting how that works, though, isn't it? It's interesting to think of how many times, you know, and again, maybe you could share in this story as well, where many of us came to salvation through hard times. You know, you may have grown up in the church. You may have been something where, where you had a, a, you felt like it was a relationship with the Lord because it's as much as you understood about a relationship with the Lord. You would have said, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, all these things. And then something devastating happened in your life, whether it's family or finances or health, whatever it is, something devastating happened. And suddenly it, it plunged you into a much greater relationship with the Lord. And you would look back to that moment and you would say, that was where I became born again. I, I ran out of all of my options. And it was only Jesus at that moment. And Jesus became very, very real to me at that moment. And that's where your life was changed. And I just look at that and I say, wow, you look at all these openings of the seals, the first seven seals, and there's so many things. I can't even imagine what it would be like to li be living at that moment. And now you've got 144,000 people out there witnessing and they're set apart by God and they're not touched by these things and they're pointing to the Lord and they're pointing to the Lamb and they're saying, He is your only hope and millions of people are going to come to salvation during that moment. It's not going to be easy for them though. It's not going to be just, Hey, I accepted Jesus and all my problems are going away. That's not going to happen for these people. Nor does it happen for us. You know, I, I, there's a lot of things. I mean, I'm grateful. I think back when I got saved in the moment of maybe the, the guilt that I had been carrying and, and the, some of the things that were controlling my life that the Lord set me free from right at that moment. I'm grateful. There was, there was a release from bondage. There was some freedom that was associated with that, right? And I look forward to that, mo or that day and it's like, man, oh, that was just awesome. But the problems didn't completely go away, Right? There were still some problems. There were still some difficulties. And we, we know that as believers, that as believers in this life, you're going to have tribulation. The Lord told us that was going to happen. Sometimes even devastation in some, in some cases. But he says, I've, I've overcome this world. Don't fear those things. I've overcome this world. Follow me. And that is our hope. I believe because of these 144,000 and the work that they were doing, I think it explains what we're going to read in verse 9. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number. Just think of that. No one could number this multitude. Of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We see a great multitude, an innumerable multitude of it's very specific of all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues. This is everybody who's still in the world after the rapture. And they're going through these things. 
You have Jews and Gentiles. You have both that are included in this group. And it says, They are standing before the throne of the Father and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, worshiping the Lord and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I had this study prepared last week before I had to call it off on Saturday when I had to. And I didn't pay much attention to that. And I'm doing my studying this morning. I'm like, palm branches. What is today? Palm Sunday. I thought, wow, Lord, how fitting, how perfect is that? I want to take a moment to think about that for a minute. You know, in John chapter 12, you'll see up there, we remember the triumphal entry that he had. And this was on his way to the cross, a week before the cross. It says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Just think about that. The triumphal entry as he rides upon that colt of a donkey and he's, he's coming in and they're waving their branches and they're saying, this is the Messiah, this is the one. One of the other gospels though fills in some details afterwards. After that excitement there, you read in Luke chapter 19, it says, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it saying, looking over Jerusalem, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day. The things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's looking upon Israel, upon Jerusalem, and he's saying, he's weeping. Because they had just waved the branches and they just said, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And they're worshiping him and he stands there and he weeps and he says, you don't get it. You don't understand what I'm coming to do. You're looking for an earthly redeemer. You're looking for an earthly king. But you don't understand the sacrifice for sin that has to take place. You don't even see that I'm standing right before you as they're waving their branches. I just couldn't miss that as we read today. After these things, I looked me hold in a great multitude, which no one could number of all the nations, tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. This time, they get it. This time, they understand. Why? Because they say salvation becomes, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb as the Lamb was standing in the midst. They see Him as the sacrifice. They see what He did for them. This time it was not hidden from them. They see it perfectly. But it's going to take a little bit of time before that comes to pass. The white robes are reminiscent of the martyrs that we read about really two weeks ago. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, 
It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Once again, you have right there the picture of the martyrs during that time. And they had died during the great tribulation. And they're crying out to the Lord and they're saying, How long until you avenge us? And he says, Until the number is completed. There's others that through death will be added to your number. Man. But they were clothed in white. Here we read today, and there are more that are clothed in white. And how did they get there? Through death. Martyrdom. If these 144,000 were somewhat of evangelists during that day, just think about this for a minute. Put yourself in, from two different perspectives in the world. I want you to think about this. If you were alive during that time and you were experiencing this, can you imagine being called by God to be an evangelist during that time? Just think of the ramifications of what you're doing. The immediate ramifications of what you're doing. You're inviting people to surrender their lives to Jesus, to follow him as their God. But think about what the consequences are for those who choose to do so. Knowing that every one of them that you invite to share in the salvation of the Lord will most likely be killed for their newfound faith. It's kind of like if you were to be a missionary in a Middle Eastern country right now where Christianity is forbidden, or maybe China, where you know that if you lead someone to the Lord, you are inviting them to possibly their death. Possibly a horrific death. But you were called to share the gospel with them. Imagine that, how that would feel. All the while, you are sealed by God to not be harmed by these things. That would be a unique situation. To some, especially those who did not understand why you were emphasizing that they needed salvation during that time, even if it cost them their life, you were telling them these things were going to happen. They were seeing people being killed. They knew what was taking place. And you're telling them, you need Jesus. Imagine how many other people they watched get slaughtered for their faith in Christ. They knew what the cost was. They understood what was going to happen. And yet you stand before them saying, you too need to surrender to Jesus. Can you imagine the family member who does not believe at that moment? We all have unbelieving family members, right? Can you imagine the hatred they would feel towards you? for trying to lead their loved one into accepting this Jesus where everyone who becomes a follower of Jesus is being murdered? Can you imagine how they, they would feel towards you? And what you were trying to do, they would see it as evil. How could you possibly do this? You know what's going to happen. What way would you feel at that moment too? You know, I, I've shared this story before, and when I first went into ministry in Arizona, and we were really struggling financially, um, 
at the time, we weren't making enough money to survive. I wasn't working anywhere else. I was full-time on staff, but our, our pay was very low from what uh, we had been accustomed to. And I remember my pastor at that time, you know, pulling me in the office, and, and I was just, we were really struggling. I was almost, I had almost used all of my 401k for that first year. I mean, we were just trying to survive. And I'm thinking, what did I just do to my family? what did I just do? You know, I mean, I, I don't even know how we're going to make it through this next year, you know? Am I going to have to get another job? What am I going to have to do? And I remember just watching, he was heartbroken as he was saying this, and he was choking back tears, and he's like, Clint, I didn't call you here to ruin your life. He goes, I, and I remember it very clearly, he's like, the church could pay you more, but we won't. <coughs> it's like, not exactly what I wanted to hear. <laughs> He was right, though. He said, you know, your entire life, you have had to depend on yourself. You were successful in business. You've been working since you were a kid. You've provided for everything you ever needed. He goes, you need to learn to trust the Lord, and this is the only way I can let this happen. Looking back at that moment, he was right. Was it good for my family and I at that moment? No. Not from a human perspective, I promise you that. Because I remember we really struggled. And the struggles didn't go away immediately. But what I did learn is I saw how God started bringing things together for us so that we could survive. You know, I always share the story, the, uh, you know, for the company I've been with for so many years, we always get Christmas bonuses, and they're great Christmas bonuses. But I didn't realize how much I had started to take them for granted because I had got them for so many years, you know. And that year... When an elder came in my office and I was doing all the books and the accounting and stuff for accounting, well, just the books. I was cutting the checks is all I was doing. And they would tell me what to cut them for, and I would cut the checks. And I remember as I was doing payroll, because we would get paid once a month. At the beginning, that, was, that was different. Get paid one lump sum, and you better hope it finishes the end of the month, right? We had to learn how to budget very well at that moment. Um, and I remember the elder coming in and saying, Clint, hey, I want you to cut two checks for every pastor on staff. Same amount. The amount that was cut to me at that time was really insignificant compared to what I had made before. But it was the first time I ever really appreciated a bonus. It was the first time, bonus for lack of a better term. There are a lot of people that got saved. No, I'm just joking. It was, it was just, it was a blessing that they gave us, right? It was the first time that I really, really appreciated because I had grown to just take those kinds of things for granted. I'd had it for so long. I find that that's the way things work in life sometimes is when you don't have those things, suddenly you appreciate little things that you've overlooked for a long time. And I think God sometimes invites us into that. I think God takes us into those situations in life. You know, we were talking about the church, you know, just before this, you know, it just we've seen this, you know, and it's been like that for ever since the church has existed. Us, we've existed. And I think that part of that is to, to make sure that I always understand the value of a person. You know, because if, if you're in a large ministry, which I've been blessed to be part of large ministries too, I think sometimes you, you lose the value of a person because you, you just have so many. Um, and when you get down to a small circumstance like this, all of a sudden you realize, wow, every person really matters. They really do. 
because it's just part of the body. I think God does that in not just in my life, but I think he does it in your life too. I think that, you know, there may be some times where God takes some things out of your life and, and maybe that's just to change your perspective of things, to get it recalibrated maybe, so you see it properly. I can tell you, you know, I asked the question, how, how would you feel as one of those 144,000 evangelists that the Lord had called these Jewish people to be? How would, how would you do it? Well, I'll tell you how you would do it. You would have to have unshakable faith in what you were inviting them into. You would have to know for a fact, if you were going to invite somebody to accept Jesus and you know that it would cost them their life, you would have to absolutely know what you were inviting them to was so much better than anything they would ever face, especially at that moment, no matter how horrific it is. You would have to believe in the very core of your being that that's what awaited them. Otherwise, you could not do it. I couldn't do it. How could I invite somebody into becoming a believer if I knew it was going to cause them a horrific death unless I was absolutely certain of what would take place after that moment. I would have to know that. And so would you. That's how they did it. And that's how those people willingly accepted because they were, became convinced of the reality of what awaited them after they would face the consequences for giving their life to Jesus. That's what makes it so beautiful in verse 10 when, it's, when you see them, these people who accepted those consequences. The multitudes, the innumerable multitude of people who made that decision during the Great Tribulation, and they are crying out with a loud voice, saying, they're no longer saying, How long, Lord? They're not saying it this time. How long, Lord? They're not saying it. This time they're saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're worshiping Him, even though they suffered something terrible to get them to that place. And for those who are witnessing that event, just the sight of that prompted another round of heavenly worship unlike anything we've ever experienced on this earth. This is a worship event that you could not replicate on this earth. Verse 11, And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They break out and worship once again when they see the multitude of people who were saved by Jesus Christ, who are now standing there. Even they were at the brink of eternity in hell. If they had died as an unbeliever, their eternal destiny would have been a completely different place. And yet they see them clothed in white. And all they can do is worship God for His greatness, for saving them. Everybody starts worshiping. Now, let's read the main reason why I know who these multitudes were, in case you were just thinking I was really a genius. In verse 13 it says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, 
These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger no more anymore or thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor shall the heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." What a beautiful picture of God's salvation. In the world where all of these people missed out on the rapture due to their unbelief, they were non-believers. And in the period of however many years, less than seven years, they came to believe and it cost them their life. And even though God allowed them to suffer for a time, he supernaturally protected the 144,000 Israelites so they could be his witnesses during those terrible days. He seals and sets apart 144,000 witnesses still to the people who had rejected him, still giving them more opportunity. And thousands, millions, all these Jews and Gentiles were saved through that ministry, even though they lost their life as a result of their salvation. Yet there in eternity, there they stand in victory, clothed in white robes that were washed in the blood of the Lamb. And for eternity, it says, they will worship and serve him, saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And unlike any suffering that they endured on earth, in heaven, it says in verse 16, they shall neither hunger anymore or thirst anymore. Imagine what they were experiencing right at that moment prior to death. We know that there's already cosmic things happening at that moment. He says, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you imagine the suffering they were experiencing prior to death? Imagine what they were going through prior to death. But now, he says, they will never hunger again. They won't thirst anymore. They won't be sun-stricken. They won't suffer from intense heat. Because the lamb, where is he? In the midst of the throne. And notice, remember, who was it who opened the seven seals? The lamb. As though one who was what? Slain. I have a feeling they're still looking at a slain, slain lamb. And they understand, he died for me. He died for me. He was slain for my sins. It's because of him that I was saved. It's because of him that I won't suffer these things anymore. Wouldn't you worship? Wouldn't you rejoice? Wouldn't you serve him forever? Just think of that moment. The one who opened the scrolls of judgment that they were experiencing, the sorrows and the suffering that they experienced, he opened those scrolls. 
He now stands before them as a slain lamb and says, I will be your shepherd. I will be your shepherd. And it says, we'll shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. Couldn't help but think of John chapter 7 with that. As he was coming towards death, Jesus, on that last day, that great day of the feast, feast, faith, the last, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Now we know that this is talking about the Holy Spirit that would come because the next few verses explain that. But he says, He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. And right there at the end of verse 17 that we're reading today, For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. He's still leading people to living water today. It's the same thing he's been doing ever since. Came on this earth and he started pointing people, showing people the way to God. How to be accepted. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, he said. He says, I will lead you to living waters, torrents of living waters coming out of your life. And in heaven, what is he doing to these people? He's leading them to living waters for eternity. He's keeping that same promise that he gave on this earth. That last part, though, kind of is the basis of the study today. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know what that means? They were crying. I think there's a clue there that even in heaven, we'll still remember some of our suffering. There will still be things that I believe can be painful for us to look upon because at this moment, they were still crying. But it says, he will remove. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's why I call this tear track removal. Have you ever cried without wiping your tears? Have you ever shed tears and not wiped them away? Do you know how they feel? Remember that feeling of how they feel? They kind of dry from the salt. And you just feel them. They're there. Even though you're not crying anymore, you still feel the tracks of the tears. The only way that you can stop that is to go (laughs) and wipe it away. It's the only way you can stop it. When you wipe it away, you don't feel that anymore, do you? It's not there anymore. I think God is giving us a picture here that in this life, you're going to have some tears. There's going to be some tears in this life. Some of which may even be caused by God. I know that doesn't fit with everyone's theology. Sometimes God will allow you to go through suffering. It's part of the plan. But he does so to break through your pride, your rebellion, 
and eventually turn in faith to him alone, just like he did for me, just like he did to any of you who are sitting here today as believers. Those tears led you to him. But in heaven, even if you make it there through a stream of tears, your whole life could be a life of suffering. But for the grace of God, we're, we're, most of us, I believe, are in positions where we don't suffer our entire life. We may have some sufferings, and there may be really hard suffering that you endure. But for the most part, we don't suffer like a lot of Christians suffer across the world. But even if you do, he will wipe every one of those tears away. You may come into heaven and maybe some of the memories of what you've gone through and heartbreak and you know difficulties that you face. There may be some time, just like here, these people were still, there were still tears. But there will come the moment, that eternal moment, where he comes up and he says, gone. No more tear tracks. You're not going to feel the effects of those tears anymore. They're not going to be a residual part of your eternity. It's gone. What will remain after the tear tracks are gone? Well, I think we see what these people did. Worship, joy, gratitude for eternity, for what he's done to save us what he's delivered us from. Because he wiped away every one of those tears. That's a promise that all of us have. This is eternal. This is something that we will all experience one day. And that's the reason why we worship. That's the reason we rejoice now. Next week, we're going to take a break from the book of Revelation obviously to get into, we'll, we'll study about what it really cost for Jesus to die for our sins and again I'm just grateful of God's timing, it's like what a perfect passage, maybe this would have been good for next week, but you know, hey I'll trust the Lord for, for that, we had Palm Sunday wrapped up, that's cool but as we stop this week and we kind of think about things you know Maybe it should be something where we stop and maybe evaluate our hearts on how much do we value what Jesus has done for us. The salvation that he's given to us. We're recipients of that if we've placed our faith in Christ. Are we grateful for that no matter what tears we still have yet to cry? Things that we still have that will be difficult. Do we value the salvation? Because in eternity, that's the hope that's set before us. That's what we look forward to. Not the present trials and distresses and difficulties that are going on right now in this world. Our hope is in Christ. It's the Lamb who stands in the midst of the throne. The one who wipes away the tears. The one who makes sense of all of this. That's who we worship and that's who we follow. Okay? Let's pray and we'll finish with a couple of songs worshiping here today. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the reminder that you give us. I thank you for the break. You know, judgments are just starting in this book of Revelation. And there's going to be many more to come. But I thank you that you stopped and gave us a glimpse of, of your goodness in the midst of these things. Even in the midst of judgment, you are still showing mercy. And you're a good and a gracious and a loving God. And it's your desire that all would come to repentance. Even during the great tribulation, that is still your heart. 
I thank you for that, God. I thank you that we follow a God who loves us so much. Lord, I pray that you would just help us, Lord, to be able to understand you more, that we would be more grateful for what you have done. And I just thank you for what you have revealed to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.